Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that we would see clearly the work of your Son, that we would see the work that we are called into, and we would see the work that he has done and will do for us. Amen. It might surprise you to hear, but the book of Deuteronomy was one of the most important books of the Old Testament at the time of Jesus. It was a book that the Jews spent a great deal of time thinking about, and if you want to understand the Gospels, my encouragement is go study Deuteronomy. It was a book that was in the air at that time. Of all the things that are in Deuteronomy, there's a handful of chapters that were even more important than the others in terms of shaping the way people thought. And this passage that we just read is one of those moments, one of those passages from Deuteronomy that shaped the thinking of the people at the time of Jesus. They heard this prophecy. This is verse 18 and 19, this prophecy that God gives to Moses. I will raise up for you, for them, a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of them. This prophecy of a prophet to come formed the expectation of the people at the time of Jesus. There's another prophecy or quasi-prophecy at the tail end of Deuteronomy that's coupled together with this. And I need to read it so that you can see the fullness of what people were expecting. At the tail end of Deuteronomy, it actually says, there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. In other words, at the tail end of the book, this prophecy has not come true. And you may say, well, that's not been very long. I mean, after all, Moses wrote chapter 18, probably not that long before he wrote chapter 34. But the tail end of the book was actually written after his death. It is, after all, to describe what happened to your body after your death when you're writing. We don't know who wrote those last few verses, who, under the guidance of the Spirit, tacked them on, but the general understanding is that they weren't tacked on until the reign of Josiah, hundreds of years later, because the book of Deuteronomy was lost, and it was in the reign of Josiah that the book was found in the temple and brought forth. And this prophecy that a prophet will arise like Moses is read, and people are face to face with the fact that this has not come true yet. And so that the tail end of the book, what's written, there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. These two statements need to be pulled together for us to understand the fullness of what the Jews were waiting for. In Deuteronomy 18, a prophet will arise, and God says, I will put my words in his mouth. He will speak with my authority. And in Deuteronomy 34, you hear the phrase, this prophet has not yet arisen, a prophet that the Lord knew face to face, who did signs and wonders against Pharaoh. There's three characteristics that come out of this. The first being that the person speaks with the very words and authority of God. The second being that this prophet knows God face to face. We hear the description in Exodus that Moses spoke with him like a friend. 
And then third, that he did signs and wonders against the false gods and the enemies of God's people. There was only one, actually, in the course of Israel's history after Moses that even came close to fitting that threefold description. It's Elijah. Elijah met God face to face at Horeb, the mountain where Moses had met God. Elijah did signs and wonders against the false god Baal to deliver the people in the way that Moses had done them against Pharaoh to deliver the people. And Elijah spoke with the authority of God, the very words of God. Elijah comes closest to fitting all three of those, but Elijah doesn't even measure up because Elijah met God face to face once and Moses spoke with him regularly face to face. And Elijah, even though he speaks with God's authority, God's words, he is not a lawgiver in the same sense that Moses was. He's the closest we get, but even he doesn't quite measure up. You run through all these other prophets, and you see many who are speaking with God's authority, but you see none who met God and spoke with him regularly face to face. Even Ezekiel and Isaiah, who saw a vision of God, saw it from a distance. They didn't actually converse with him face to face like a friend. In fact, when you start scanning through, you realize that there's only two others other than Moses who even did miracles, Elijah and Elisha. This threefold nature of this prophecy had been promised, but had not yet come true. Elijah was the closest. The fact that Elijah was the closest began to sort of grow in the people this sense that there's something about Moses and Elijah. They, they, they demonstrated a certain sort of ministry, and God wasn't done with his people in terms of that sort of ministry. A prophet would come exercising the fullness to do for the people what Moses had done, deliver his people from slavery, bring them face to face with God, and teach them the words of God. They were waiting for this. That sense of waiting grew in the people. And if you actually read the literature written between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, what we call the literature of Second Temple Judaism, if you read that literature, you find this expectant waiting is front and center. Y'all have likely heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the community at Qumran, the Essenes, who lived in the desert in holiness to wait for God. And in their community rule, their scroll that describes how they're supposed to live, they explicitly say that we're waiting for the prophet, the prophet, the one promised in Deuteronomy 18. You read 1 Maccabees, a history of the Jewish people between the Testaments, and you see in 1 Maccabees this expectation that the prophet will come. This expectation amongst the people was live and real and formed and shaped the hearts of the people. This is the sort of stuff that's hard for us to appreciate. It's hard for us to live with a thousand years of expectation that God's supposed to show up and do something magnificent in us. It's hard for us to understand how much people would be looking for signs, wondering when this sort of thing came, would come true. But it's that sort of expectancy that you see littered all over the Gospels. And it's based on the belief that God would do this, that God would accomplish this prophecy, this promise. And so when John shows up out at the River Jordan, baptizing, proclaiming repentance, 
the priests and Levites go out to him and they look at him and they say, are you the Messiah? And he says, no. And they say, are you Elijah? And he says, no. And at that point you go, wait a minute, why did they ask for Elijah? And remember that Elijah was the closest that one had come to being like Moses. And so this whole expectation for another prophet becomes wrapped up in the life of Elijah and Moses, even to the point in Malachi 4 when God says, I'm going to send Elijah back and he's going to pave the way. Like there's this, and they, there wasn't a clarity of exactly what they're waiting for. Even at Qumran, the Essenes, those people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were weirdly waiting for three people. One was the prophet. And then they were waiting for two messiahs one from the line of David to be king and one from the line of Aaron to be priest. There wasn't clarity. There was just this very clear sense that God would do something and he would honor his promise. And so when the priests look at John the Baptist and say, are you the Christ, the Messiah? That question makes sense and he says no. And they say, are you Elijah? That question makes a great deal of sense given Malachi 4's prophecy. And he says, in his humility, I'm not even that important. Now, Jesus later will say, actually, he was that important. He was the Elijah to come. But John either didn't think it of himself or dared not say it. Their next question, though, is revealing. Because the priest and the Levites look at him and said, are you then the prophet? The prophet. Do you fit Deuteronomy 18? And John the Baptist says, no. That expectancy is seen all over the Gospels, like I said. You could jump forward. We talked about this a few weeks ago when Philip said to Nathaniel, we found the one that Moses wrote about. He's almost certainly referring to this exact passage. You jump forward to John 6. Jesus takes the people into the wilderness. He feeds them miraculously in the wilderness. This has hints of Moses all over it. People in the wilderness, miraculous bread coming down from heaven. And you know what the people say in that moment, John 6, 14? Surely this is the prophet, the prophet. They see the signs. You jump forward a chapter, John 7, verse 40. Jesus is in Jerusalem and people are listening to his words. He's speaking with authority. And they say, this has got to be the prophet. That expectancy is all over the place in the Gospels. This is the point where I need to turn the corner because otherwise I'll get lost in all the places that it shows up. But it's not going to surprise you to hear that the apostles realized that Jesus was the fulfillment of that promise. You're like, Stephen, I saw that one coming a mile away. The answer is always Jesus. It's not going to surprise you that the apostles, the disciples, the gospel writers understood that Jesus was the fulfillment of this promise. They actually go to great pains in the gospels to show us this. This prophecy was important to them, and they want their readers to know this is Jesus. Deuteronomy 18, this is Jesus. Matthew's the most explicit. You can't read Matthew if you hold the image of Moses in your mind and not realize that Matthew is trying to make you realize that this is Jesus. Moses wrote five books. So Matthew gives us five great sermons of Jesus. Ha, huh, five and five. He's like the new Moses. Moses fled from a wicked king at his birth who was trying to kill him. Ha, huh, Jesus had to do it. Matthew's the only gospel writer to tell us that story. Moses fled from that wicked king by going deep into Egypt, into the very palace Weirdly, he found safety close to the king. And where does Jesus flee when the wicked king wants to kill him? 
to Egypt. Matthew's showing us over and over and over, all the things are clear. Jesus is the fulfillment. Moses' great law-giving sermons delivered on the edge of a mountain. And so Jesus' great sermon on the mount, Matthew's the one who tells us it was on top of a mountain. All the signs are there. Even preceding that sermon, Moses had to fast for 40 days. And what does Jesus do before the Sermon on the Mount? Goes into the wilderness to fast for 40 days. Matthew is trying to pound us in the head. Jesus is the fulfillment, the prophet like Moses. And yet there's something different. Because when Moses speaks to his people in his great law-giving sermon, he is not giving his own words. He says, this is what God says. This is what you're supposed to do according to God. And yet when you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says over and over and over, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. But I say to you, but I say to you. He makes it very clear in the Sermon on the Mount that his authority is greater even that of Moses. The gospel writers realized that Jesus was the fulfillment of this promise. And it's why they emphasize these things. It's why they emphasize the authority of Jesus' teaching. I mean, you see it in this passage that we just read in Mark, that people are astonished at his teaching because he's teaching like one with authority. He's not like one of their scribes. The scribes spoke with a derived authority. They were interpreters, not lawgivers. And Jesus is not like that at all. And the gospel writers emphasize over and over his authority in his teaching. It's why the gospel writers emphasize his communion with his father. The fact that he met with him face to face. If you go just seven verses after our reading in Mark ends, we hear Jesus going off into the desert to meet God. It sounds an awful lot like Moses leaving the camp of the Israelites going out to the tent of meeting to speak to God face-to-face. The gospel writers emphasize this face-to-face communication, this knowledge that the Son has of the Father, the way that they know each other. It comes to the point where in John, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's no separation here. The authority in his teaching. Remember these three marks from Deuteronomy? The authority in his teaching. The face-to-face communication with the Father. They're all there. But it's the third of those three marks that I actually want to sort of dwell on today. At this point, you may go, you've already dwelled on a whole lot already. How do you have time for more? Don't worry, I can speak fast. The third sign, miraculous deliverance from the forces of evil. Miraculous deliverance from the false god. That was Deuteronomy 34, part of the criteria for the prophet. Moses did it. Miracles against the gods of Egypt to set the people free. Elijah did it. Miracles against Baal himself to set the people free from this false worship. And it's in this passage that we see one of many instances in Mark and the other Gospels, where there is this miracle of deliverance to set the people free. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, and a man shows up. It's funny that Mark says he was teaching, and people are stunned by his authority, like because he was teaching not like their scribes. But Mark doesn't even bother to tell us the content of the teaching. He's not worried about that right now. He wants to plunge into the miracle of deliverance because immediately there's a man there and he's bound up by an unclean spirit. 
He's bound up. And what do we see immediately? A miracle of deliverance. Jesus doing battle with the false gods the way Moses and Elijah did. But it's so much more than Moses, just as his teaching was so much more than Moses. There's this interesting incident in Exodus 8. After the third plague, the gnats, the false magicians of Egypt, they come to Pharaoh and they say, we can't replicate this one. This is the finger of God in our midst. God's power is working through these things. They recognize that behind Moses stands God's power, and the magicians are scared. It's interesting because you jump forward to this deliverance of this man in the synagogue, and the demon also knows who he's dealing with. But in Moses' case, it was just that God's power, his finger stood behind him. The demon looks at Jesus and says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of Israel. That statement, the Holy One of God, is a statement that in the Old Testament only gets applied to God himself. This is not something you say about another human. There's multiple words in Hebrew for holy and multiple words in Greek, and the ones that the demon chooses are the ones that should only be applied to God. He speaks and says, I know who you are. In other words, he is more than Moses in his deliverance, just as he was more than Moses in his teaching. He is God himself battling against the forces of evil to set people free. And yet Jesus doesn't want people to know who he is. He shushes the demon. Not allowed to speak. It's a secret. I'm here in disguise. One of the weirdest things. In fact, one of the jokes about Mark is that no one in Mark gets it. Theologians call it the messianic secret of Mark. They love to coin words that we go, huh? Nobody knows who Jesus is. The Messiah is a secret Messiah. In fact, it's not to the very tail end of the book. When a centurion, a non-Jew, the Roman who was responsible for overseeing his death, says, surely this was the Son of God. It comes bursting out out of the lips of the most unlikely creatures. A demon at the beginning and a centurion at the end. The reality is Jesus doesn't want it declared yet. He's here incognito. He's here in hiding. I find that fascinating. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said that God had landed in enemy-occupied territory. He says enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part of his great campaign of sabotage. I love that image. The king landing in enemy-occupied territory in disguise and saying, help me break this system down. Help me set people free from this system. The reality is, is that the battle between Jesus and the forces of evil had actually already begun even before this instance in the synagogue. We're not even through the first chapter of Mark in the battle's front and center. And in fact, this is one of Mark's dominant themes. Jesus comes announcing a kingdom. Kings have armies. Kings do battle. Kings reclaim territory. And that's what's going on. Mark depicts Jesus' own temptation in the wilderness, verse 12 and 13, as a battle. He goes out into the wilderness, and he was there 40 days being tempted by Satan. And weirdly, Mark alone tells us, and he was with the wild, wild animals. He goes into the wilderness, the desolate place, the desert. Sin turns gardens into deserts. It kills life. 
And Jesus goes into the place where there is no life because of our sin. And there he comes face to face with the enemy of mankind. And he does battle with him. And he breaks one of his greatest weapons. He breaks the weapon of temptation itself. This is the point when you should start to like conjure up in your mind images from Lord of the Rings and Narnia. And th- because we see a king going out to face the great foe. And he's going to take down the weapons he uses against mankind one by one. And so he goes out into the desert and he breaks the power of temptation. One of the greatest powers that Satan wields against us. And he breaks it. In that desolate place caused by our own sin, he renders that power of Satan worthless. And what immediately starts happening? Creation starts coming back to life. Wild beasts that were meant to be with us playing with us. Wild beasts that through all the prophets, whenever there's a picture of the new kingdom, we discover they're not so wild anymore. Children playing with snakes and lions and lambs lying down together. And what happens when Jesus breaks the power of temptation? Creation starts to come back to the way that it's supposed to be. Lions and scorpions playing around him. Snakes crawling over his shoulders. And most of y'all go, oh, But the point is that creation's coming back to what it's supposed to be as he takes the battle to the enemy. At the front end of his ministry, he takes the battle and breaks the power of temptation. At the tail end on the cross, he takes the battle and he breaks the power of death itself. We read later that ultimately Satan himself will be destroyed. One by one, his forces are being broken. Temptation at the beginning, death at the end, What's fascinating to me is in between Jesus' fasting in the wilderness and breaking of temptation, and in between the cross and resurrection where he breaks the power of death, he goes on a campaign of setting people free, of setting them free. This reminds me so much of the way C.S. Lewis depicts Aslan. He comes into Narnia, and there's all these creatures trapped in stone and bondage. And what does he do with them? He sets them free. He sets them free as he moves. The snow starts to melt. Life starts to come back to creation. He's delivering them. At the beginning, he breaks temptation. At the end, death. And in between, he wages war on the things that sin has done to us. All of the forms of bondage that we suffer from. In this Gospel reading, we see it's a man with his, wrapped up in an unclean spirit. There's a demon binding him in shame and pollution and guilt. And Jesus banishes it. Throughout the Gospels, you see people bound by physical maladies that are the result of humanity's sin. And he releases them from it. You see people bound by idolatry. You see people bound by self-hatred. You see people bound by all of the things that we get bound by. And he breaks the bonds over and over. This king in disguise on his campaign to reclaim creation breaks the people free. Aslan's breath turning beasts of stone back into living creatures. Idols, their power broken. People's hatred for one another dissolved. A campaign of setting people free. This is the ministry that's given to us. It's given to us not because we deserve it. (laughs) We participate in binding people too oftentimes. 
is giving to us not because we can do it in our strength. But this ministry is actually given to us because it is Jesus's. And we are joined to him in baptism. His life is now our life. Our life is his life. His sufferings, our sufferings, our sufferings, his sufferings. His ministry, our ministry, our ministry, his ministry. We are bound to him and we are now a part of him. And so his campaign of setting people free suddenly becomes part and parcel with what our lives are supposed to be. Remember the threefold ministry, declaring God's words with God's authority, being face-to-face with God, setting people free from the powers of evil. This is the ministry that we're called into, speaking God's words. It is way too easy to speak our own words, but there is no power in our words. Stephen Breedlove's statements are just that, Stephen's, fairly insignificant. But the words of God, they transform things. They bring life. And we are given the ministry of declaring his words. It is so much too easy for us to use our own words and foist them on God and say they're his. And all of us need to be thoroughly examined so that what we speak is God's and not our own. We're called into that ministry. We're called into that ministry for the people who live around us for the people in our families, for our neighbors, to actually speak the truth of God to them and to not shirk from that. Y'all, the Bible is clear that when God's words go out, they don't come back without accomplishing what he wants. And we are timid and we think it'll never work and it doesn't count. And God says, my word lacks no power. Romans 1, when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he doesn't say because I'm a really bright guy and I can defend it really well. That's what I would have said. And you would have said, not that bright. He doesn't say, because I've got a really great audience, because I've got a slick promotional message. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. God's words are powerful. We're called into the ministry of his words. We're called into the ministry of calling people face to face with him. This is the end, the goal, the pursuit, that we would bring people into the presence of God. And we're called into the ministry of setting people free, free from demonic powers free from sin, free from shame and guilt and self-hatred and self-deception and pride and all of the other ways we bind ourselves up or are bound by the people around us. We're called into the ministry of setting people free, setting them free from their self-justification, setting them free from their idolatry. This is the ministry that we're called into, called into not because we are something special, but because we've been joined to Jesus and it's his ministry. I need to close. I just looked at my watch. And so I'll say really only one thing in closing. We are called into this ministry, but we cannot do it unless we abide in it. We cannot offer others the word of God unless we abide in the word of God. If we give it 30 seconds of our time, and move on to more important things of the day, we will not have it to offer to others. We can't exercise the ministry of drawing people face-to-face with the Father if we don't live face-to-face with the Father. If it's third or fourth or fifth tier in our lives, we will not be able to draw people into his presence. 
And lastly, we cannot bring people the deliverance that Jesus offers if we don't seize it ourselves. This was actually the thing that hit me hardest this week was how easily we give up the idea that Jesus actually offers deliverance. I'm not saying it's fast, and I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying we'll get all of it in this life. But I will say that he promises to set his people free. And we far too easily resign ourselves to just as this is the way it's always going to be. We don't believe that he would actually deliver us from our sin. We don't believe that he would actually deliver us from the shame and the guilt and the self-deception, the pride, all the other things that wrap and bind us. But the king has landed. And the king has landed to set his people free. In this, he calls us into this campaign, this behind enemy lines effort. And so my call to y'all is to both see the ministry we are given, but to live in the ministry, to let those things work on you. Amen.